0: Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, and it can be found on page 941 in the Pew Bibles. All right, good morning, everybody. If you are a regular attender of Calvary, you know that we've been working our way to a sermon series in 2 Corinthians called Yet Always Rejoicing. If you're not a regular attender, you don't know that, but that's okay. We're very glad uh, that you are here this morning. Last week, Pastor Eric uh, mentioned that our series has brought us to a key point in the letter of 2 Corinthians. We got to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, the letter takes uh, an interesting turn, and I'm going to be out of the pulpit for the next three weeks. And so, rather than picking up uh, this interesting turn and starting us down this new road, uh, like I had thought maybe I would, I'm going to I'm going to uh, punt on that. Pastor Eric punted last week. I'm punting this week. Uh, so we'll keep kicking the can down the street. But we're going to. Take the next, uh, this week and the next three weeks, because I'm gonna be gone, uh, to just do some sermons that focus on uh, the pastor who's preaching their particular uh, focus and attention. And I am going to focus this morning on Romans 3. 21 through 24 which has been read for us this morning. This is a particular focus of a book project that I'm working on, so I figured I could double up and do some of the use some of the research for my book project and uh, and uh, save myself uh, some time here with our sermon prep. So in Romans 3 uh, 21 through 24, Paul speaks about the manifestation of the righteousness of God. And this is a concept that I think is often misunderstood. So I want to provide some clarity on this idea this morning, the righteousness of God, and then give you some practical ways that a proper encounter with God's righteousness can shape and fuel our Christian walk. So there's going to be a two-part sermon or a two-point sermon. The first point is going to be directed primarily to Christians, and then the second point of the sermon will be directed primarily to non-Christians, and both Points are gonna have application to both groups, so don't check out on your particular point or or the other person's particular point. And I should also say at the front end that this is gonna be a bit of a teachy sermon. You know, so some pastors are more preachy than teachy, some are more teachy than preachy. I'm more teachy than preachy generally, but even for me, this will be a little bit more teachy. So bear with it. I promise that Pastor, that Professor Gerald will become Pastor Gerald by the time uh, we get to the end. So just hang in there. So we're going to get started with just a bit of a context of what's going on in the book of Romans, why Paul is writing it, or a major reason why he's writing it. And then we'll get into our text here in chapter three. So in the first, so first some, some historical context for the occasion of the book of Romans. In the early church, I've mentioned this before at various points uh, in in different sermons, but just for those that need a refresher. In the early church, there was a fair bit of confusion about the relationship between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile, or the non-Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians were the original followers of Jesus. So Christianity began within Judaism. Jesus, of course, was Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. And so the entire church originally was Jewish, and it stayed that way for the first couple decades or so. But as the church grew, it began to spread outside of Judaism into the Gentile, the pagan Gentile world. And the Apostle Paul was the apostle that took the good news of Jesus out into the Gentile world. He calls himself at one point as the apostle to the Gentiles. So the reason that the, that the message of Jesus went out into the Gentile pagan world was largely due to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So in our Second Corinthians sermon series, we're looking at Paul's interaction with the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is an entirely pagan or Gentile people, and Paul is the one that began that ministry there. So Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's taking this gospel out into the Gentile world. Now, as the gospel, though, crossed into the Gentile world, the church's leaders, who were all Jewish, of course, began wondering what to do with all of these Gentile pagans that Paul kept converting. Because under the old covenant, the Gentile converts had to become Jewish in order to be part of the people of God. So if a pagan Gentile wanted to convert to God, they would have to get circumcised. They would eat kosher. They would observe the Sabbath. They would otherwise live in accordance with the Jewish law. They would become a member of the nation of Israel. Because if you wanted to get in on Israel's blessings, you had to become a formal member of Israel. But Paul was going around, and he was teaching all of these Gentile converts that they didn't need to become Jewish, that all they needed to do to get in on God's blessing was to have faith in Jesus. And Paul's teaching seemed to many of his fellow Jewish Christians to be a dismissal of Israel and the entire Jewish heritage, including the law. And so a council was called in Jerusalem and all the church's leaders gathered together. This We can read about this in Acts chapter 15. They all gather together and they debate this issue. And in the end, they decide that Paul Right. The Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to become part of the people of God. Both Jew and Gentile alike receive the promises of God through faith in Jesus, not through the Jewish customs or the Jewish law or becoming part of Israel. So, Paul's letter to the Romans is written in large measure to explain all of this. And to clarify how both Jew and Gentile are saved through faith in Jesus. So that's kind of the historical context of what's going on in the early church and why Paul is writing the letter of Romans. Now in terms of the flow of the letter itself, Paul, to make the point that he wants to make, he begins his letter by explaining that both Jews and Gentiles are alike under the condemnation of sin. So the whole world, not just the pagan Gentiles, but even the Jews too, the whole world has fallen under the condemnation of sin. So being a Jew didn't make the Jew any less damnable, and being a Gentile pagan didn't make the Gentile pagan any more damnable. Everyone together was alike under the condemnation of sin. So Paul sums up the argument that he's making in these first three and a half chapters about the universal nature of sin in verses 19 and 20. And so you can look here in your Bible, if you still have it open, and you should still have it open, you can look here in 19 and 20. Uh, Paul says, he's summing up his argument about the universal nature of sin. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says and speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul is saying the law speaks of condemnation upon the whole world. And so therefore, that includes even the Jew is under this condemnation of sin. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin so having made his point then about the universal nature of sin, he turns a corner in 321, which is where we're picking up this morning, and he begins to speak about God's salvation. So in light of the fact that the whole world is under the condemnation of sin, God does something. And verse 21 begins to explain what God does in light of the fact of this universal condemnation. All right, so with all of that in place, It's forward into the breach, and here's our first point. Righteousness is a person, not a moral standard. Righteousness is a person, not a moral standard. This is the point that I'm going to apply or want you to think about most particularly if you're a Christian, but non-Christians, you listen in uh, as well. In 321, Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested or has appeared apart from the law and the prophets. Now, when we hear the term righteousness, we tend to think of it here in America, 21st century America, we tend to think of it as a synonym for morality or integrity. So in that framework, we think of a righteous person as someone who tells the truth, lives with integrity, keeps his or her nose clean, and otherwise follows the rules. So, then when we read in 321 that the righteousness of God has been manifested in Jesus, we, we might think that what Paul is saying is that Jesus has made manifest God's moral standards. As though the problem with sin is that we had lost track of God's moral standards, and that, of course, is true, and we're awash in our own kind of sin and condemnation. And so, what God does to begin the process of redemption as he sends Jesus to show us what morality really should look like. But that's not really the way the term righteousness is used in the Bible. The Greek and Hebrew terms that are translated as righteousness or righteous are used over 500 times throughout the Bible. And there's a bit of nuance with how the terms get used depending on who and what is being called righteous. But when the terms are used with reference to God and his people or the relationship between a king and his subjects, the terms are used with a consistent meaning. When used of a king, the term righteous referred to the kind of king who was willing and able to create a state of righteousness for the subjects of his realm. And this state of righteousness was a state of flourishing and well-being. So the term righteousness in this context is often set in parallel with the biblical concept of shalom or peace. Maybe you've heard of this Hebrew term shalom before. It's often translated peace or well-being or welfare. And so... In Isaiah 60, verse 17, the Lord is speaking a word of blessing to the nation of Israel, and the Lord says, Instead of bronze, I will give you gold. Instead of iron, I will give you silver. I will make your overseers peace, or shalom, and your taskmasters, taskmasters righteousness. Or in Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight "'In my righteousness,' the psalmist says, "'shout for joy and say, "'Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare,' or the shalom, the peace, of his servant.'" So when a king's city was full of righteousness, that meant that the city was full of justice and equality and fairness and prosperity and food and security and peace and so forth. It was a city full of shalom, a city full of welfare. Now, a chief feature of the king's righteousness was that he would act on behalf of his people when they were in trouble. So this is going to be a thing that Paul is going to lean into in particular here in verse 21. Whenever the Israelites were persecuted and oppressed, they would call out to the king for the king's righteousness to become manifest. Because it was through the king's righteousness... On their behalf, that they would be delivered from their plight. So in Psalm 72, we can see this understanding of the king and his righteousness being given to the people. In Psalm 72, 1 through 9, it's written as a royal psalm. It's a psalm that's speaking about the king, and it's written from the perspective of the king. And so the king, as the psalmist, says this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. We've been talking in the second Corinthians series about the golden chain of discipleship and that everything that we have to give first comes to us from God. And here the psalmist is working with that same sort of perspective. God gives the king His own righteousness so that the king can take this righteousness that has come from God and pass it on to his subjects. Give the king your righteousness so that he may give your people righteousness and your poor justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace. Here's this shalom word again. May peace or shalom abound till the moon be no more. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. For he delivers the needy when they call and the poor and the poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And so the king would act with righteousness for the people of his realm and particularly those who are being oppressed and mistreated. And it worked the same way then with God's righteousness, when the faithful Israelite was in trouble, he would call out for God's righteousness because it was through God's righteousness that he would be delivered. And this helps us understand why the terms righteousness and salvation or righteousness and deliverance are often used interchangeably in the Bible. So in Psalm 41.4, we read, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Or in Psalm 31, 1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. And God would answer his people accordingly. So in Isaiah 60, in Isaiah forty-six, thirteen, the Lord says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. And again, in Isaiah 51, 5, the Lord says, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. And the important point to make here is that the king's righteousness or God's righteousness was viewed as a good thing, a saving thing, because it created a context of flourishing and it was most especially needed when the people of God were in distress or in trouble. So in Romans 321, when Paul says that the righteousness of God has become manifested in Jesus, he doesn't mean that Jesus has given us a clearer picture of God's moral standards. He means that God's shalom-creating redemptive activity, his saving deliverance has appeared in the person of Jesus. So when sin had gained the upper hand, and this is what Paul is talking about in the first three chapters, all about the universal problem of sin. When sin had gained the upper hand and when we were the whole world, both Jew and Gentile alike, under the just judgment of God, when eternal death was the only way to get off of the train of life, the righteousness of God appeared and Christ, our deliverer, righteously atoned for our sins, Tended to our mortal wounds and began ushering us towards our ultimate destiny as children of God, conformed to his image. And Paul is telling us that the appearance of Jesus out into the world publicly is the great sign that God's righteousness has come to the whole world and those who are in need. So Paul is not saying that God is revealing his moral standard, he is revealing his salvation. But here's the most important thing to note in all of this. Paul is not telling us fundamentally that Jesus brings God's righteousness. He's telling us that Jesus is God's righteousness. So in verses 22 and 23, Paul says that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ and that we have been righteous or justified, it's the, same, uh, it's the same Greek term, the same root term of righteous. We have been righteous or justified in Christ. And Paul's point is that the saving righteousness of God has, that has become manifest, that was witnessed by the Torah, and that was prophesied by the Jewish prophets, is Jesus. Jesus is the saving righteousness of God, which is why in 1 Corinthians one thirty. Paul refers to Jesus as our righteousness, because that's what Jesus is. Earthly rulers can handle earthly problems, but we need God's own righteousness, whose name is Jesus, to come and rescue us from our deeper and more fundamental spiritual problems of sin and death. The reality is because we all alike are under the condemnation of sin and have fallen prey to sin, we do not love others as we should. And we do not love ourselves as we should. And we don't have the self-control that we should have, which causes us to have an inability to love others as we should. And all of this is a failure of righteousness. Because righteousness is our relationship to others. Are we bringing shalom and righteousness to the world around us, or are we failing to do that? And we fail to do that. We do things we ought not to do, and we don't do things we ought to do. And because of this, we have blood on our hands that we cannot wash off. And getting a new job, or a new car, or a new spouse, or another 100 likes on our new Instagram post cannot resolve the fundamental problem that sin has caused. The problem, the deeper spiritual problem of sin in our soul. We need the life of God, the righteousness of God, the shalom of God, whose name is Jesus to atone for our sins, come into our hearts, and create a habitat of shalom and righteousness Inside of us. Only God's righteousness in the person of Jesus can turn the chaos of our lives into a well ordered, flourishing city in which righteousness dwells. All right, so now as a Christian, I encourage you to think about this as relates to your spiritual walk. So if you're a Christian and you've been thinking about the Christian life as primarily a moral code. That God calls you to live up to, and you've been thinking about Jesus chiefly as an exemplar of this moral code, then I encourage you to think again and to start thinking about God's righteousness as your salvation, and to start thinking of your salvation as a person, a person who has come to rescue you, who loves you, and who carries in himself the solution your deepest problems. Jesus does not give you solutions so much as he gives you himself. It's insofar as Jesus comes with God's own righteousness because he is God's righteousness into the depths of our lives that he is able to bring salvation and deliverance. And this is why Jesus in Revelation 3 stands at the door and he knocks because he wants to come into our lives. He wants to bring the righteousness of God into our lives. So yes, there is a pattern and a way of life, a morality that he wants for us, but it is only insofar as Christ himself, who is the righteousness of God, takes up residency in our soul that we are made well and restored. And so when you pray for more of God's righteousness in your life, more of God's redeeming power to help you overcome your ongoing struggle with sin, bear in mind that what you are really praying for is more of Jesus, that it's only in intimacy with him and love for him and for the person of Jesus who is the righteousness of God, that God's righteousness takes root in your soul. So the first point to draw from this passage here about God's righteousness is that God's righteousness is a person not just a moral code. And here's our second point. This is chiefly for our non-Christian friends this morning that might be here. second point is this. You even as a non-Christian are living within the realm of God's righteousness. In 321 Paul is drawing on the Old Testament language of God's righteousness to make this point about the salvation that God brings to the whole world. And he's keen to point out in verse 22 that God's righteousness has come, he says, for all who believe without distinction. Now, when he says without distinction, he means without distinction between Jew and Gentile, which is what he says later in chapter 10, verse 12, He writes, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And this is an important point because in the Old Testament context, a righteous king acted righteously, but only for his own people. The righteousness of a king did not extend beyond the borders of his realm. So Israel's king would not ride to the rescue with righteousness to defend the troubled citizens of some other king's realm. I mean, how might the citizens of David's realm felt if King David had begun to cast his righteousness further afield and rode to the rescue of Israel's enemies? The citizens of Israel would have rightly complained that David should prioritize the people of his own realm, and that in acting righteously toward the cities of the other realms, that was a dereliction of his duty as king to Israel, because after all, an earthly king only has so many horses and so many soldiers and so many resources to go around, and you need to focus on your own realm. And Israel had begun using that same logic to think about God's righteousness, The chief benefit of being a member of the nation of Israel, the Israeli mind and Jewish mind, was that Israel could appeal to God for his righteousness. And God had been so faithful to Israel in giving Israel his righteousness, even when they hadn't even deserved it entirely, that by the time we get to Jesus, and when Paul is writing Romans, Israel had come to believe that God's righteousness was their exclusive purview. God was the king of Israel, they thought. He's not king of the Gentile pagans. As such, God had no business deploying his saving righteousness on their behalf. If a Gentile wanted to convert and become a member of Israel, well and good, that was fine, then they were welcomed into Israel's blessings. But if they weren't going to become an Israelite, then they weren't going to get Israel's blessings. And that's why the Gentile converts were causing such consternation in the early church. If the Gentiles were able to get God's righteousness while remaining outside of Israel, well, that meant that Israel didn't have a leg up on the rest of the world when it came to God's righteousness. And that was a hard pill for many of the Jewish Christians to swallow. And that's why Paul is writing his letter, in many respects. And so all throughout Romans, Paul is combating this false logic. And he's starting to assault this logic right here in this passage when he insists that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that both Jew and Gentile freely get God's righteousness. God is the king of Israel, yes. But what Israel had forgotten was that God is also the king of the whole world. So look in Psalm 47, one, or I'll read it for you. In Psalm 47.1, the psalmist says this, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth, the power of the nations, belong to God. He is highly exalted. And the manifestation of Jesus as the righteousness of God is the manifestation of God's universal reign. God is not just the king of Israel. God is king of the whole world. And Israel is just part of the whole world of which God's kingship begins, but God's kingship extends to all. And Jesus is the great king of all the earth. And he is bestowing his riches, his righteousness on all who call on him. So yes, as Paul says in 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile equally. But all are justified or righteous-fied, again, this same Greek word, all become partakers of God's righteousness by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this was such good news for the Gentile world. They were not, as it turned out, outside the realm of God's righteousness. So imagine living back in the days of King David, and you're an Israelite, But you and some others decide to settle beyond the borders of Israel. It's a risky move, but the land you want to settle in is good, and you're hoping that it will lead to prosperity. But subsequently, you are besieged by enemies from a neighboring city, and things are going poorly, and you desperately wish that you had not moved past the edges of the king's realm because now you are outside the bounds of his saving righteousness. But then imagine that word comes to you that David has just won a great war and that he has expanded the borders of his realm and that now your small city was within the borders of his kingdom and that David's army was riding to your rescue. What good news that would be because you had gone to bed the night before thinking that you were outside the king's realm and thus outside the reach of his righteousness. But you woke up the next morning to the good news that you were actually inside the king's realm and thus an object of his saving righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying about the Gentiles that the revelation of Jesus brings about. The Gentiles don't need to come into Israel in order to get into God's righteousness. As citizens of the world, the Gentiles are already within the realm of God's rulership. They're already objects of his righteousness. All they need to do is to acknowledge their sin and receive God's righteousness as a free gift. So here's my word then of application as it would relate or relevance as it would relate to those of you here who are not Christians. The same word that the Apostle Paul spoke to the Gentiles in the first century is the same word that I speak to you Perhaps you went to bed last night thinking that you were living outside the realm of God's care, outside the realm of his righteousness. But this morning I tell you that you live and you move and you have your being within his realm. God is king of the whole world. He is the king of your world. And as such, you are an object of his saving righteousness. He is not against you. He is for you. And he has sent Jesus to your rescue. And if you will but open your eyes in faith, you will see and come to experience the deliverance that he has sent to you. There's a story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elisha and his servant are trapped In a besieged city. And Elisha's servant is terrified because things are not looking well. But Elisha is not terrified. And Elisha has the eyes of faith and he is able to see that the besiegers of the city are themselves besieged by a ring of angelic warriors. And so Elisha prays that God would open the eyes of his servant so that his servant would be able to see God's deliverance as well. Listen, God has sent Jesus, the king of angels, to deliver the world from the tyranny of Satan and our souls from our sins. And you, all of us, live within the realm of his righteousness, within the reach of his righteousness. He has ridden to your rescue, and he has given his own life for you. When David would ride with his armies to deliver his cities, he never gave his life. But Christ, our great king, has ridden to deliver his world, and in doing so, he has given his own life. That's how committed he is to our righteousness and our participation in his righteousness. And my prayer for you this morning is the same as Elijah's prayer for his servant. O oh, Lord... Please open his eyes that he may see. Oh, Lord, please open her eyes that she may see. There is righteousness all around you. My prayer for you this week has been that you would see it somehow, that you would realize it is available to you, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, and it stands now ready and available to you if you would but take it. Because the righteousness of God will do you no good if you do not believe in it and you do not trust in it. One last illustration and then we're done. Some, so many people are like river lo- rocks. River rocks lie submerged within the river. They're awash in water covered in water. They're completely surrounded by water, wet on the outside, but they're dry on the inside. The water doesn't penetrate beyond the surface of the rock. And as a non-Christian, maybe you're a river rock this morning. God's righteousness is all around you. You are awash in God's love and His compassion you are swimming in his righteousness, but you're blind to it. You don't see it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't receive it down into you. All of his righteousness doesn't help you if you will not receive it into the part of you that needs it the most, your heart. And My prayer for you is that the Lord would open up your eyes to see his righteousness and that you would then open up your heart to receive his righteousness. Don't be a river rock. Turn to the Lord in humility and in faith and invite his life, his righteousness, his shalom-making peace inside your life. His righteousness, God's righteousness, who is Jesus, comes as a free gift to be received freely we don't have to even be righteous in order to get God's righteousness. God extends his righteousness on all within his realm to whoever would take it. And it is free there for the taking, even for you this morning. To receive God's righteousness, maybe you say, I don't know how to do that. It could be done even with just a simple prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins and grant me your righteousness in Jesus. Come into my life and make me who you created me to be. If you can pray that simple prayer in truth and sincerity, spirit opens up your eyes to see the righteousness of God. You reach out and you take it and you invite the righteousness of God, who is Jesus, into your life. He forgives you of your sins and he begins the sure work of healing and bringing shalom and peace into your life so that you can become all that God has created you to be fully conformed to the image of the Son. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus when we were in desperate straits and we uh, had been uh, tyrannized by sin. When the devil was at the gates and tearing down the walls of our lives, Lord, you sent Jesus as our great captain and he has come and he has broken the power of Satan and he has given himself to us to atone for our sins and to restore us, to turn our souls into souls of shalom and peace so that we have something to pass back on to the world around us. God, I pray for any here this morning perhaps who have perhaps too narrowly thought of Jesus as just a revelation of your standard. May they see in Jesus the great personification of your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would call out for more of him in our lives. And for those, Lord, this morning here who are not Christians, Lord, I pray that they would have their eyes opened, that Elijah's prayer would be answered on their behalf and their eyes would be opened and they would see the deliverance that you have sent, that they would call out, open the gates and receive into their lives this deliverance that you have sent to the person of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.